This is the G Truth. This is your host, Giovanni Kalas. And oh, I got a whole lot of stuff today. I finally got my Dak Prescott film analysis from his game against the Packers done. I worked all night on it, all morning on it. I'm very happy about it. Hopefully, all goes well. I'm going to leave that the best for last. Um, I'm going to get the basketball stuff out of the way and move on to the football stuff. I wish I could talk about the Dodgers today. I guess I can talk very, very briefly about them, but it won't be in its own segment. Um, all I'll say is, what what was Dave Roberts thinking? I, I have mentioned this before. Everyone knows it. It doesn't take the most brilliant person to understand it. Clayton Kershaw just doesn't perform that well in the playoffs. He doesn't. And Dave Roberts puts him in and he allows back-to-back -back home runs. That's the second time he's allowed back-to-back -back home runs in the postseason. He's never allowed it in the regular season. In the postseason. The Dodgers are built on analytics. Most of baseball is actually built on analytics. And that works in baseball more than in other sports. So I don't know why you stray away from that. Why is there from the analytics that are telling you go to the bullpen, do what you normally do to get Soto or Rendon out? You go to Clan and Kershaw. Why? It's a horrible matchup. A, it's a horrible matchup. B, he doesn't perform that well in the playoffs. Walker Bueller had a great game, only allowed one run. He played great, but that all got spoiled by Clan and Kershaw. And Dave Roberts. Yes, Joe Kelly let up that Grand Slam home run in the 10th inning. But that would not have happened if Dave Roberts didn't have Clayton Kershaw in for that brief moment. And I really thought that the Dodgers improved their late game hitting. They didn't. They didn't. So... That's unfortunate. I had to win the whole thing. Obviously, that's incorrect now. But it does set up for a very interesting rest of the playoffs. Alright. Um, what else? What else? What else? I got a band I started listening to also. Um, Snow Patrol. Pretty sure that's what the name is. I'm going to look up. Just be sure. Because it's Snow Patrol. Yeah, Snow Patrol. And I started listening to them. Um... I remember listening to their Chasing Cars when I was really, really young. I was born in 2001. I'm really young. I literally had my birthday a couple of days ago, October 9th. Yeah, so that's pretty cool. Um, yeah, so that, so that album came out in 2006, so I remember listening to it growing up. Uh, I just went back, listened to it. I really, really enjoyed that whole album, their whole Eyes Open album. It's really, really good. And I just started listening to the other songs in their other albums. Because, you know, they have other albums. Uh, and so one of the one that one of the ones that I really, really like now, uh, that, that I just listened to right now, a song is called I think it's Time Won't Go Slowly. Time Won't Go Slowly. It's like the whole genre is kinda slower, kinda very melodic. It's very nice. I like it. It's uh, very peaceful. So it helps for background music if you're doing setting, stuff like that, or just anything else, really. I do not have a biography to talk about today, but I do have plans for ones for next week, so that's going to be good. 
Um, I do have a school break this weekend, so I'm going to be trying to do um, working on the logo of the G-Truth. I'm, I'm going to be working on that. So hopefully I get that done. Hopefully I have time for that, and I get that done, and hopefully it looks really, really cool. It will. I don't know why I'm saying hopefully. It will. Anyways, let's get right into it. So I'm going to continue what I said I was going to do last episode with the NBA divisions. We're still in the preseason. Um, the NBA season does not officially start until October 22nd. So I'm just going to go division by division and then team within the division and just give you what I think their plan is and what I think their goal is. All right, let's hop into it. All right, so the Northwest Division is in the Western Conference, and it has, like all the other divisions, five teams. This one has the Nuggets, the Trailblazers, the Utah Jazz, Oklahoma City Thunder, and the Minnesota Timberwolves. Four of those five teams made the playoffs last year. So, is it safe to say that three or four of them are going to go? Yes, yes. The Nuggets are going to go. The, the, um, the Nuggets are going to go, the Trailblazers will go, the Jazz will go. The Thunder, I'm not sure, maybe with Chris Paul leading the charge, maybe. Timberwolves, probably not at all. But let's start off from the top, best record, the Nuggets. Now, they're young, they're a young team, they got uh, Michael Porter Jr., they still have Nikola Jokic, they have Gary Harris, they have Jamal Murray, they have Paul Millsap, they just got Jeremy Grant from the Thunder. They have a really young roster. They got Bull Bull also. They were the second seed of the last season. They made it all the way to the um, Western Conference semifinals where they lost to the Portland Trailblazers, who ended up losing in the conference finals to the Warriors. But this team goes deep. They're young. They're deep. They have everything you could possibly want. They, in a way, remind me of the younger Warriors team when they first started getting things going. So, what the plan is for the Nuggets, I think it's very similar to last season, but just implementing Michael Porter Jr. and Bull Bull into the mix, uh, as well as Jeremy Grant. I think that this season you go for the number one seed. I think that they saw how much that number two seed really helped them, and they want to up, one-up that and go for that number one seed. Especially as a young team, you really, really need that home court advantage and that support. And I think at the same time, they want to get Michael Porter Jr. to um, carry some of the, some of the uh, scoring load or get used to NBA pace, all that stuff. Coming off the bench, I don't think he's going to start right off the bat. If he does, then hopefully it works out for them and Mike Malone. Um, but yeah, I think he comes off the bench, same with Bull Bull. And I'm really excited to see that happen. And I think that they're going to try to develop him and Bobo as much as possible for the playoffs and for future seasons. Their goal, uh, I already said it, get the number one seed. I think for them, they want to get to the Western Conference Finals. Making the finals is great for them, but I think that their goal, their main goal, is getting to the Western Conference Finals. Again, building up that playoff experience with the young guys so that going forward, you're set and you can actually make multiple, multiple runs and create a dynasty. At the same time, I think that they also want Michael Porter Jr. to get a lot of reps in, and I think that they hopefully want him to eventually move up the rotation into a sixth man 
and hopefully average around 10 points per game. I think that's a good number for, for him. So that's their plan and their goal. That's what I believe their plan and goal is. Now for the Trailblazers. They lost Ennis Kanner and Seth Curry, but they got back Hassan Whiteside. It's an interesting move. I'm not sure if I'm fully on board with it. They did get the three seed last season. They got always the conference finals. Um, I really don't know where they go from here. I guess their plan is get a high seed, just like last, probably the same thing as last year. Get a high seed, um, stay healthy, fresh. I think the main thing for them is figuring out how to have an offense or a score without Lillard or McCollum doing a heap of the work. But looking at their roster, they're the, they're the two main playmakers. They're the two main playmakers, so I don't see how that's going to work. I just don't. And I think that their goal in their mind is get to the Western Conference Finals again. But in my mind, I just think that they're stuck right now. They have a lot of bigs, and it worked for them in the playoffs, having all those bigs. And they have Damian Lillard and TJ McCollum. But they're kind of stuck at this point. Because I don't see them going to the finals, or even the Western Conference Finals, even though they have those goals. I just don't see it happening. It all starts with creating a better offense that Lillard and McCollum do not have to micromanage at every step. Now for the Utah Jazz. They have, well, well, they lost Ricky Rubio, but they got a better player in Mike Conley Jr., as well as one of the Bogdanovich is. I, I always forget. I always mix it up. Um, anyways, I think that their main plan, especially with getting Donovan, especially with getting Mike Conley Jr., is to ease the workload on Donovan Mitchell. Make it a lot easier for him, make him a real shooting guard. Um, and then same with Mike Conley Jr. Uh, have his hopefully have his veteran presence and his experience in the league rub off onto um, and then his leadership too rub off onto Donovan Mitchell, who's already great as it is, but to help him out a bit more. And I think that as a team, their goal slash plan is also to get a get a top three seed. Because just like the Nuggets, they're a young team, and so they're going to need that. And their home court advantage for the Utah Jazz is actually insane. It is insane. Now, for their goal, they're still getting playoff experience. They're still figuring it out. Um, I think that the main thing that they want is a better shot selection for Donovan Mitchell, and that comes with Mike Conley Jr. running point. It comes with him handling the ball more, allowing Donovan Mitchell to become more of a shooting guard rather than a playmaker that has to do everything and really figuring out that offense in the clutch to ease off the workload, like I said, on Donovan Mitchell and allow Mike Conley Jr. to also share that workload, especially in the clutch. And like I said before, I think that their main goal is not only to get to the playoffs, but to get a top three seed. If they can do that, then they look really, really nice for the future. Not this season, because I don't think that they're going to win the whole thing this season, but they look really nice and set up for future, for future seasons with all that playoff experience. The last two teams, the Thunder and the Timberwolves, 
their plan and goal are essentially the same. Um, for the Thunder, it's make the playoffs if you can with CP3 leading the charge, but really just develop the young players that you got, like Shea, like Shea Gilgis Alexander alongside Danilo Gallinari and Steven Adams and CP3. Basically, that's all you're doing. And just preparing for the future, for the draft, stocking up on draft picks, stuff like that. They already got most of that done, especially with the draft pick part. Now for the T-Wolves, for the Timberwolves. I mean, this, this has pretty much been the plan or goal that people have been calling for for quite some time now. It's, you got to keep Andrew Wiggins or you got to trade him. So far, they've been keeping him. I think that this season really, really should be the do-or-die season for Andrew Wiggins. I I'm sorry, but he's had all this, all this potential, but it just hasn't blossomed into something spectacular yet. And if, and I'm pretty sure in their minds also, especially with Carl Anthony Towns, because, dude, I'm pretty sure they want to win. And I'm sure that they want to go to the playoffs. But in reality, sorry to break it to you, they probably aren't. So in this division, they're probably going to go from four teams making the playoffs to three teams making the playoffs, which is still good. But I think that the two teams that are going to try to shoot for, actually all three of these teams are going to shoot for really, really high seeding because they, of all the other teams in the conference, need it the most, especially because of their youth. Or in the Portland Trailblazers case, they just need it for that home court advantage because they don't have enough pieces around Damian Lillard and CJ McCollum. And these other two teams, the Thunder and Timberwolves, are still trying to figure it out. One more than the other. Okay. Alright, I just talked about basketball for a bit, divisions, all that stuff. Now I can get into the more football stuff more current stuff, which I'm really excited for. Um, this, this is actually the first time I'm going to do this, and it should go relatively quick, mainly because I just have quick explanations for these. So I have five betting lines that I, for, for this weekend, um, that I thought are actually pretty reasonable. Um... Yeah, so I'm not sure what I'm going to call this segment. Probably some really corny, cheesy name. But you'll probably like it or laugh at it or think that I am the most unfunny person in the world. But let's get ahead to this. Alright, so I have five games where if you look in their spread, I have five games of in the NFL that I choose to spread. So let's start off, just for example, um, the Eagles versus the Vikings. The spread is at three. I'm going to go plus three Eagles. Hopefully there's a visual up here detailing it as well as after I finish um, this segment. Showing all the final and my current ones that I'm talking about. All right, so the Eagles and Vikings. Like I said, I'm going plus three Eagles. And the reason why is because the Eagles are a uh, an above 500 team. And you know Kirk Cousins. 
he does not have the greatest trend or winning percentage against winning teams. That's pretty much the biggest reason why it shows the Eagles, as well as Carson Wentz. I think that he's starting to somewhat string together um, wins now, or at least starting to get into a rhythm. And as good as the Vikings defense is, I just think the Eagles are going to win this by, well, more than three, I guess. Um, next game is Saints against Jaguars. Now, I get it. Gardner Minshew has been phenomenal. Although he did lose against Kyle Allen last week. But that Jaguars defense is struggling. It is. It is struggling, especially without Jalen Ramsey. I thought that that defense would get a bit better. Especially with inspiration of Nick Foles and then with Garner Minshew. But it hasn't. Uh, I think the Jaguars offense will score a bit. But the Saints defense is incredibly, incredibly good. So I'm leaning to the Saints. I'm leaning to Saints plus one. I don't know why the Jaguars were even favored by minus one. But I'm going, I'm leaning Saints plus one. They have a great defense. Teddy Bridgewater has been playing great as of late. He does what he, he needs to do. Nothing more, nothing less. This is, this is set up for the Saints to win. And next I have Cowboys against the New York Jets. I'm taking the Cowboys minus seven on this. I think that they win by more than a touchdown. Their offense looks fine. I have an analysis on it, a film analysis on it. It looks fine. Um, but one, the only thing that worries me is the Cowboys' defense, but I think that the Jets' offense has been struggling mightily. And and even though Sam Darnold's coming back from his illness, it's, he's not going to fix everything. That offense was not looking good even when he was there, and... Not ill. Le'Veon Bell hasn't gotten going. Stuff like that. And so I think that this is a pick-me-up for the Cowboys defense. Now, if they somehow lose this game, it does not look good for the Cowboys in general. It does not. But I believe that they will win by more than by more than a touchdown. And I think that, that this is a good bounce back game after losing to the Packers for now not only for the Cowboys offense before their defense more so. Next up, I have the Bengals against the Ravens. The Ravens opened up as 11-point favorites, but I'm taking the Bengals with plus 11. I think that the Bengals generally keep it close this game. Um, they've been doing that for some of the games this season. Yes, they've gotten blown out several times, but I think it was two times with the other two times. Other couple games they've kept relatively close, including the opener against the Seahawks. But overall, the Bengals just roll on both sides of the ball. I think the Ravens still win this, but I think that the Bengals keep it close, make it interesting, but ultimately lose. Especially with the Ravens' offense and defense not playing up to what it has been playing up to earlier this season. And lastly, I believe it's Sunday Night Football. The Steelers against the Chargers. Oh, my goodness. I really wanted, I really wanted to take the Chargers as minus 6.5, but I'm taking the Steelers plus 6.5. I still have the Chargers winning this. Hopefully. But, as much as it saddens me, I have to keep it real. 
the Chargers, for whatever reason, for the past couple years, like keeping games that should not be close, really, really, really close. We saw that against the Dolphins. The freaking Dolphins, who suck. Sorry, they're just not good. Their team is really, really bad. But they were keeping up with the Chargers for the first half. It, and, and even last week against the Broncos, which the Chargers lost, their offense for the past couple, for this whole season so far, has been just horrendous. I don't know why. I'm, I'm going to do a video on it. It's going to take me a while to figure it out, but I'm going to figure it out, and, and I'm going to do a video on it. But their offense has been struggling. Now, I think that, that their offense does just enough to win. But I think that the Steelers come within a touchdown for this game. So, let me recap it. All right, Eagles-Vikings, I'm taking the Eagles plus three. Uh, Saints-Jaguars, I'm taking the Saints plus one. Cowboys-Jets, I'm taking the Cowboys minus seven. Bengals-Ravens, I'm taking the Bengals plus 11. And Steelers-Chargers, I'm taking the Steelers plus 6.5. So those are my bets. I'm not actually betting, but these are my predictions. So hopefully it all works out. Best case scenario, I'll win three of these five. So, yeah. All right, I'm going to take a little break. And stay tuned. Don't leave, because I have what... I believe, aside from my Doug Flutie piece and my best running back piece and all of that as my grand work, my grand masterpiece, and that is the Dak Prescott film analysis versus the Green Bay Packers. I'm really proud of this. I really hope it goes well, so stay tuned. All right, let's get into it. Well, not just quite yet. So, I'm just going to say this is my first time doing a film analysis. I really hope it goes well. All the video, if you're watching this on YouTube, should come out on the screen um, of the plays I'm talking about. Hopefully, it'll come out great. Um, so it's going to take some time for me to do, but I'm going to work really, really hard on it and make sure that it looks good. And I'm sorry for listening to this on a podcasting device uh, or app podcasting app not device um i'm gonna do my best to detail what's going on probably won't be perfect it's better to watch this on youtube really um but on whatever podcasting app you are on the link to my youtube channel should be down below all right this is the one i've been waiting for let's start it All right, this past weekend, Dak Prescott got a lot of flack for not performing up to statistical standards against the Green Bay Packers. And it got into this big, huge debate of, does he deserve X amount of money? Should the Cowboys pay him this money? Or should they just go after someone else or just pay him less or trade him and get someone else? I don't really buy into all that. I think that 
the Cowboys already have their own idea as well as Dak Prescott of how much money they want to give or get. But I have I am more looking not as to how much Dak should be paid, but more in what happened for Dak specifically against the Packers last weekend. And whether that should concern Cowboys fans, regular fans, or anyone. And you can take it as you want. You can take it as, oh, Dak Prescott should not be paid. Or you should take it as, oh, he can learn and he can become really, really good. You can take it however you like. But I'm just putting it out there. And it's what I saw from going over the film and my big takeaways from it. Alright, so let's start off. Throughout this whole game, I found that it was probably going to be really difficult for Dak Prescott to do anything. Because Green Bay was pressuring him like crazy with four defensive linemen. And as soon as that happens, it is difficult. It is difficult to, to do much. If your offensive line is giving up stuff, to four defensive linemen just like that, then it's hard to make plays happen. It's hard to run, it's hard to throw, you get instant pressure, stuff like that. And this pressure wasn't even coming, like some of it was coming from brute strength. Some of it was fake blitzes that confused the offensive line. Some of it was just defensive linemen crossing around confusing uh, the offensive line. So that was one problem. Another problem is that they completely lost the running game, especially in the second half. In the second half, they only got three carries from Ezekiel Elliott for four yards. That is not good. It was a four-yard run, a negative two yards, and then plus two yards. So three carries, four yards. I can literally show the clips right here of the plays that he ran. It's nothing much. And then Dak Prescott scrambled for 24 yards, which is kind of nice. Keeps the defense on their toes. But again, the run game was not there, especially in the second half. And part of that is because they were down 17-zip going into halftime. So really time's not on your side, and you cannot afford to lose time by running the ball. Now, that's on the more Packers side, what helped the Packers, things that didn't go right. Now for evaluating Dak Prescott, he did a lot of things right. He did a lot. He, most of the time, makes the right play, makes the right decision, passes to the right person, scrambles at the right time. He's very good on time outs. I'll show a few right here. He, he has great throws when he takes his time, when there's a clean pocket. He's really, really good under those circumstances. He's great with quick throws, like slant throws, where he can just zip it right into the belly of a wide receiver or a tight end and when he has that clean pocket when he has um that time to make quick throws or he has timed route it makes it a lot easier for him to process or digest the defense and what they're doing however there were four things that i noticed and you can take it as worries or things that he can get better at but i'm just putting it out there the first thing is concept place. Now I noticed two of them, two of them, but there are probably more. But there are two that 
completely stood out to me. And they happened in the face of pressure, so it became more instinct. Not, oh, I can take my time here, I can practice and go, okay, we have a curl flat concept, and I can say, oh, okay, he's packing off so I can take the flat. No, it's with pressure, so everything has to be instinct. That's being ingrained into your mind. The second problem that I found is the way that he took sacks, especially under pressure. The way he took sacks. He took a total of three sacks. I'm going to go through each one of them, as well as the concept plays. There were two of them that I found, probably more. The third thing that I found also was the way he throws in the pocket. I don't have a problem with it, but it's more with his footwork, and we'll get to that too. And the fourth thing is we're going to examine his three interceptions as well as one interception that got nullified by a penalty. And eventually they got a touchdown off that drive, but we'll go over it. All right, so the first thing, the concept plays. And these are under pressure. Keep that in mind. So like I said, it's all about instinct now. So the first one comes at... 2.15, well, 2 minutes and 15 seconds left in the second quarter. It goes down as an incompletion to Ezekiel Elliott. There's immediate pressure from Darius Smith on the left end uh, down the A-gap between the center and the offensive guard where he just goes, where, where he's lined up on the outside, but he just goes around the offensive guard and just confuses the whole blocking. So he gets a straight beeline to Dak Prescott. Now, on the left side, Dak Prescott of the of the whole offensive line too. It, it should be a quick read. It's a curl flat concept between Amari Cooper and Jason Witten. Cooper's on the outside, but between the numbers and the offensive lineman, Witten's a bit closer to the offensive lineman, kind of backed off a bit. Cooper's running a curl route. Witten's running a flat route. Pretty simple. And the way that it goes, and this is a pretty simple concept too. Cooper is pressed. He goes up. Jason Witten, immediately wide open. You should see the clip right here. Immediately wide open. And it should be an immediate throw to Jason Witten. should be immediate. At this point, it should be ingrained in your mind. Even with all that pressure coming from, from, from Zadarius Smith, you got to make that throw right away. And Dak Prescott's looking at the play. That, that's the concept that they're running. One of those is the hot route. Or, or the primary route, not hot route, primary route, primary receiver. But for whatever reason, Dak doesn't. I'm not sure if he doesn't know what what they're doing or if he's unsure of what defense, of what the defense is going or doing, um, or if he just doesn't understand the concept fully. So that's a concern right there. Instead of throwing the ball to Jason Wynn like he should, he instead rolls out away from Zadarius Smith, and he just gets hit while throwing it into the dirt. So that's the main concern right there. He did not recognize the concept and did not deliver on it like he should. The second concept was on the same drive, also resulted in an incompletion, but in this one he just threw the ball out of bounds, not to Ezekiel Elliott. And this happened with 50 seconds left in the second quarter. So right before halftime. This is on their drive to 
try to get a field goal, but they ended up missing, I believe it was a 54-yard field goal. I think it was a 54-yarder. Packers send a whole bunch of rushers. They send six rushers. They send six rushers. And, and this one's also a pretty simple concept. So that it's a simple drag route and a simple in route. Cooper's running the drag route. Blake Jarwin, Blake Jarwin, another tight end, is running the in route. And it's a bit higher than the drag route, like the concept usually is. And at this one, you, you don't even have to understand the concept. You just have to look at the play. Again, it's going to be playing right here. Amari Cooper is wide open. It is crazy how open it is. Even if you don't understand the concept, you should just throw it to Amari Cooper. He is a wide open. He can turn up field, get some yards, get closer to the field goal. A line that the kicker can actually kick at instead of missing. And it's a clean pocket too at first until pressure gets there. So it should be fairly easy for Dak Prescott to recognize that it's a drag in in route concept, or even that Amari Cooper's wide open. However, he doesn't throw it. He doesn't throw it. Why? I don't know. Instead, he does the exact same in his last play. He just rolls out and he throws it away. So those are two concerns right there. Easy concepts, easy throws. Doesn't do it. The second thing that I was talking about also were the sacks that he took under pressure. Now there were three. There was the first one came in the first quarter with six minutes and nine seconds left. The second one came in the second quarter. The third one came in the third quarter. So it was one per quarter, excluding the fourth quarter. But I'm gonna go over the first quarter one last because that goes over what I want to talk about for my third point. So for the second quarter, it happened with nine minutes and eight seconds left in that quarter. It was a sack for three yards. It was just incredible pressure coming from the four defensive linemen that the Packers had. And this one, I don't really fault Dak Prescott. I really don't have a problem with what happened here, except for maybe just dump it off to Ezekiel Elliott. Not really a big deal. Three yards, nothing in the world. Now the one at in the third quarter with 6 minutes and 43 seconds left, it was a sack for nine yards, which is a bit more of a big deal. And in this one, he goes through progressions, he finds out nothing's good, maybe the drag route he could take, but no, he wants to go for something bigger. And as the progresses, eventually he gets you know hit, but Witten loses his man. Hopefully I'll highlight him or draw a circle around him, but he loses his man. And I, I just think that at that point, he just waits too long. And he, I mean, he's doing, he's trying to do all the right things. He's trying to. He has that pressure coming for him on the left side when is wide open. And as soon as Dak starts rolling out, he should notice that when it's wide open and he should throw it. But he waits too long. He waits far too long to throw it. He doesn't even get into a wide can at this point and is like, oh, okay. No. Jason Wynn's looking right at you. You gotta, as soon as you start rolling out, you gotta throw in the run. Because he waits too long, he gets caught up and gets sacked. 
he had the right idea of rolling up, but you gotta throw that as soon as possible. That's a touchdown right there. Easy touchdown. Now for the third sack, with six minutes and nine seconds left in the first quarter, it was for it was a sack for ten yards. And, and this one's more relevant to my next point. Packers press up on all the wide receivers, all the tight ends, all that. And they and they do a great job of it. They get good pressure on Dak Prescott. I'm pretty sure that it's four players rushing again. But it's not so much that of the pressure I'm worried about. It's more of what happens during it with Dak Prescott, which leads to my next point also. But I'm going to first cover this. He starts drifting sideways and backwards. First of all, if he starts drifting sideways to, to the left side, where the defender is coming from, and he starts going backwards, which is, the, which is not good at all, because you, you're not seeing what's going on in the field. And even if you do throw, you're throwing off your back foot. So, to, so first of all, that, that's wrong. That, that's point A of what went wrong. So at that point, he should have just, instead of stepping to the left, should have sidestepped to the right. But he shouldn't have sidestepped and started drifting backwards and then throw off his back foot. He should just do a little step to the right, kind of settle in. And if he lets that play develop for just a split second more, you can see that Jason Witten loses his man. He loses his man literally falls down. And at that point, you can just float it right up to Jason Witten. And that's potentially a touchdown, maybe go down to the five-yard line, something like that. It's a big play right there. And all that comes just from pocket presence. And what I'm going to touch on even more, which is drifting. Dak Prescott drifts, not a lot, but when he does, it does cost some big plays. So there were two standout ones. So that was one of them with the sack. Uh... I have two others aside from that. Two standout ones that happened in the first quarter and then and in the third quarter. And it is important to note that this does not happen often, but it is important that it does happen. The first one with seven minutes and forty-nine seven second seven minutes and forty-nine seconds left in the first quarter. It's a mostly clean pocket. He does a lot right on this play. He does a great fake to Murray Cooper as soon as he starts his route. The defender falls for it, and Cooper is home free. He is home free. He has tons of separation. And Dak Prescott does a great job of getting away from pressure, sidestepping. But just like before, when he sidesteps, he starts drifting backwards. And so when he throws, he makes the he has the right idea of throwing to Amari Cooper because he's wide open. It could be a touchdown. But as he sidesteps, he starts going backwards, and he starts falling backwards. And when he throws it, he ends up throwing off his back foot. And we all know in football, if you're a quarterback, if you throw off, even if you're not a quarterback, just from experience, when you throw off your back foot, you, you tend to overthrow, uh, underthrow it. You tend to underthrow it. And so when he underthrows it, that leads to Cooper having to come inside. Instead of staying on the outside, near the sidelines, he has to come inside into the field. He has to slow down a bit. And when he slows down, he ends up catching it, which is good. Which is good. It's accurate, but it's underthrown. 
he ends up catching it, but he ends up stumbling. And because he stumbles, he loses his speed, and he's already slowed down a bit, and he gets tackled from behind by, the, by, his, by his defender. If Dak Prescott simply just sidesteps, but steps into the throw, instead of sidestepping and going backwards, just goes into the throw. Stepping into it, he probably throws a lot better ball to Mark Cooper. Mark Cooper does not have to go in or stumble or slow down. It probably ends up leading Amari Cooper and it ends up being a huge touchdown. A huge ends up it probably ends up being a huge momentum booster. And and, and especially on that drive after him throwing the pick earlier, it's a big momentum booster, but instead it becomes a punt on that drive. And, and I know that Dak Prescott is fully, fully capable of making that throw correctly, like I said. Because he did it with 7 minutes and 56 seconds left in the fourth quarter. With a 53-yard touchdown to Amari Cooper. A touchdown! He could have had that right here, too. He stepped into the he stepped into the throw. He let him. It was a good throw. And it was a touchdown. I know he's capable of it. It's just little things like this. Where he doesn't do it. And it adds up and it starts costing them in in ways that you don't think of until you start reviewing it. And then the second situation that I found this was 10 seconds left in the third quarter with a 27-yard pass to Zeke Now this one, it was it worked out okay. Couldn't really have gotten better, but it definitely could have gotten worse. On this, on this play, again, he drifts backwards, and he throws off his back foot. It works out just fine, and it falls right into Ezekiel Elliott's hand. But again, Zeke has to slow down for it, and and, if it, and it could have gotten a lot worse if he understood that a bit more. Could have been intercepted or incompleted. So for the future, I would, I would, I would have liked him to step into it and float that pass just a second earlier as Zeke's rounding that. Uh, rounding that route. That way he has a bit more of an acceleration and it gives time for Dak to actually step into the throw. Lastly, now I'm going to talk about the three picks that he threw and then the fourth one that almost happened but got nullified by a penalty. So I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go through it Alright, so one of those three picks was the wide receiver's fault, and that was the first one that his first pick in the first quarter. Ten minutes, forty seconds left in the first quarter, barely into the game, opening drive for the Cowboys after the Packers had just punted. Interception pass intended for Cooper. Uh, Mark Cooper does get some separation on it. Dak Prescott notices that, and he does everything right. He he averts his eyes, moves the safety away from the play, and Randall, Randall Cobb does a great job of also pulling that safety away from Mari Cooper. So it becomes a one-on-one -on -one matchup between Mari Cooper and his defender. And Dak does everything right. He steps into it. It's a good throw. Has some nice zip to it. Great velocity. Problem is, it's just a bit behind Mari Cooper. Mari Cooper gets his hands on it. And... It just goes right through his hands, and it just falls 
into Jair Alexander's hands, lap, whatever, whatever you want to say, and it's an interception. The, the Cowboys were actually doing pretty good on that drive, their opening drive, and it loses all momentum that they had gathered, and it really sets them up for the rest of the game. So in this one, I'm not going to blame Dak Prescott, even though it was a bit behind. I'm going to kind of blame Amari, but not so much because it was a bit behind. So it's as you're running full speed, it's kind of hard to contort your body in order to catch that. It was just unfortunate. Now the... I'm not talking about the fourth interception because I'm going to get to the other two interceptions that happened because those are just dumb. This fourth interception that almost happened was in the four was in the with 14 minutes and three seconds left in the fourth quarter, just before the actual third interception. Um, it was nullified by a penalty, but it could have also been a touchdown for the Cowboys. Eventually, eventually they did get a touchdown on that drive. I'm pretty sure. But it's important to look at this because if it wasn't nullified by the penalty, and that's a fourth pick, which is not obviously not good at all. Same, same thing happens as I was talking about earlier. He starts drifting backwards, and he just throws it. But this time, instead of underthrowing it, he ends up overthrowing it just by a bit. He leaves it high. He kind of floats it. He leaves it high for the defender and wide receiver to kind of fight for it ends up getting tipped by the by the by the defender and it falls into the lap of another defender for an, for an interception. This one's more of Dak's fault, especially since he throws off his back foot again. Again. And he doesn't place the ball where he should at all. He ends up throwing it high. Ran this is for um who is it? Randall Cobb. Randall Cobb's not going to go up and get it, wide receiver. This is QB placement annoying your wide receiver. He should have zipped it more to the inside, allow Cobb to have a real chance at it rather than throwing it up high into more of the defender's side. He should have thrown it to more of Cobb's side and low so that no one can get it, only Randall Cobb can get it. That way it's safe from any interception. But nothing bad happened since it was nullified by penalty, but just for future reference, not great. Now, the second and third interception that happened were just plain stupid. Excuse my language, but okay, that's not a curse word at all, but these, these interceptions were dumb. They were just bad. So the second interception happened with 12 minutes and 47 seconds left in the second quarter. It was intended for Randall Cobb once again, but this is just this is just dumb. I I don't I don't really get what Dak Prescott's kind of trying to go for here, and I, I think he just doesn't see the defender that's just sitting there, who's really just guarding the flat route of, of Zeke. But he's he's just sitting there, and I don't think Dak sees him, and he sees oh Randall Cobb is hitting that one. I'm gonna throw it across my body. But that's just not smart. You learn as soon as you start playing football. Don't throw it across your body. It, it goes breaking. People break that rule sometimes. But this is not one of the rules. And this is not one of the times you break it. Even if the defender is not there, this is still inexcusable. 
because there's no way that this is a, a complete pass. There's no way. Now, the time to throw the ball was not when he got out of the pocket and they were like, oh, you're all over there. Let me throw it. No, it's when Randall Cobb and Amari Cooper cross and the defender's over here. So he's blinded for just a minute. And that's when you throw it. That's when you throw that slinger right at Randall Cobb. Because then you probably get a first down. And it's safe. No, no pick. Overall, that play was just really not smart on Dak Prescott's um, side. The third and third and final interception happened with 10 minutes and 29 seconds left in the fourth quarter. Kind of really started to end things for the for the Cowboys. Now this pass was intended for uh, Gallup. However, literally everything with this with this throw went wrong. I I really don't. I mean, playing. I really don't know what Dak Prescott was trying to do. I, I really don't. Maybe he thought Gallup would stop after getting into a bit of a tussle with the defensive back, turn around, and he could throw it to him. Maybe it was an option route where he could, you know, curl or go to the outside or go in, and he was just guessing based off the way that Gallup stopped that he, that he was gonna either curl or go to the outside. Maybe it's one of those. Or maybe he was just throwing it there hoping for a pass interference or some sort of penalty. Either way, that throw is unforgivable. It is horrendous. It's a horrible idea. There's three defenders right there. I mean, like, why, why, why are you throwing that pass when you have Randall Cobb on an in route prancing in the middle of the field, going across the field, wide open? Don't don't risk it. Don't put yourself in harm's way. Take what's there. Take what's wide open and take the easy yards unless you have a better idea. And in this case, you do not have a better idea. So all in all, putting all that together, the concepts that Dak Prescott missed out on, the curl flat, the drag in, um, the, the drag out and in route concept, the three sacks that he took, one of which... I'm fine with the pocket throws where he ends up throwing off his back foot or starts leaning backwards. Um, and then, and then the three picks as well as the one near pick putting it all together. My opinion, it's in my opinion. It is worrisome. Just like the concepts should be instinct. So that tells me that he doesn't understand them. He doesn't understand the concepts or he just hasn't gotten accustomed to it, which is worrisome. Because as a quarterback, and it was, I think, fourth year now. I'm not going to have to fact check that. Maybe fourth year. This should be ingrained. You should know this. It should be easy. For, for the sacks and for for some for some of the picks, for, for the dumb picks, the one where he just throws it and I have no idea what he's doing. It seems like he's a step behind. For the picks, it just seems like he's a step behind. He's a step behind, and he's not looking at where the receiver is, and he's kind of just going through the motions. You cannot do that. In the pocket, when when he's throwing off his back foot, it's not a huge deal. It isn't. It, it can be easily fixed. All you, all you have to do is just step up, take the hit, and throw it. 
But if it continues, even though it's fixable, it can wipe away potential, potentially big plays. In the end, I get it. He's not Drew Brees, he's not Patrick Mahomes, he's not Tom Brady, he's not Russell Wilson. He's not the top of the top, he's not the elite of the elite. And overall, he usually makes the right play. He usually does. He is smart, but he just wasn't smart that day. And it wasn't like the Cowboys were confusing him or anything like that. He just wasn't playing up to the normal level that he usually could. And, and like I said, he usually plays mo most of the time really correctly. Usually makes the right decision. Makes the right play. But when he doesn't, like in this game, when he throws off his back foot, doesn't know, just throws it up there for the wide receiver and is ill-advised. When he's seems a step behind, when he's rolling it under his right open, Jason Witten in the end zone, and he gets sacked, and he's not even in a throwing motion yet to throw the ball out to Jason Witten. When he starts playing like that, rather than the usual correctness, that correctness and preciseness that he plays with, it goes really, really, really bad. And it can cost them games that really, really matter, just like this one against the Packers. Because that game, that loss against the Packers, is, is more than just a loss on the standing sheet. It showed the world. It showed the sports, media, community, showed the, all the NFL teams whether or not Dallas is real. So if I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan, I'm okay for now. But I am slightly concerned. Anyways, I, I think that that went really, really well. For the first time of me doing that, it, I, I really enjoyed it. I think I'm doing more. I'm, I'm going to do more of those. It's surprisingly really, not addicting, but really, it, it really gets you going. Um, Figuring out all these different plays, or or just going through a film and figuring stuff out and piecing together and trying trying to add one and one with two to get four. It I really like it. So, anyways, that does it for the G Truth. Thank you for listening and peace out.